Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders for our church. And back when, uh, about a year after I started in college, I was hanging out with some high school friends one day. And one of them put me down with a pretty serious accusation. This person said, you've changed. And I wanted to respond to this person with, what's wrong with you that you haven't changed? Friends, Jesus came to change the world. And he starts to change the world by changing us. We can be a part of changing the world with him only as we're willing to see how we need to change ourselves. And so that accusation that I had changed, I I did not receive that as criticism. I received that as uh, encouragement. We're beginning a, a new sermon series on the missionary career of Paul. A man who lived in the first century, he wrote many of the books of the New Testament. Last week, uh, one of our leaders, Ryan, kicked off the series with a study of, of, of Paul's life to give us some context of his history and his background. This week, I'm going to, to overview two, the first two books that we're going to look at, First and Second Thessalonians. And then we're going to be studying those books through chapter by chapter, and then We'll look at uh, the books of First and Second Timothy. We chose these four books because the two Thessalonians books were two of the very first letters Paul wrote. First and Second Timothy were two of the last letters that he wrote, so they give us this bird's eye view of the beginning and the end of his ministry. So this week, I'm, my task is to overview for you First and Second Thessalonians. And these letters were written to a congregation of people in the city of Thessalonica, which was a bustling seaport in northern Greece. Uh, Greece was a a country in in Europe, almost like a hand sticking down into the Mediterranean Sea with lots of peninsulas and islands at the bottom. And Thessalonica is about 200 miles north of Athens. Athens is is down near the bottom. Thessalonica is up on the seacoast, up sort of uh, here on the bridge where the, the thumb and finger would be in my, my metaphor. It was a bustling seaport, had lots of people and news coming and going all the time. And Paul wants to encourage these, these people, this young church with what's going well in their church so they can continue thriving in their walk with Jesus Christ. So according to Paul, what I want to talk about this morning that he's going to explain in these two letters, is we'll see what are the marks of a thriving church. On your outline, we'll see first that a thriving church expects a simple message to turn the world upside down. Second, it focuses on cultivating three chief virtues. And then third, it changes course when one of the virtues is lost. Let me pray for our time. Father in heaven, please help us as we study your word and as we consider the main message of these books that you've laid before us. Help us to hear and understand by the power of your spirit that we might be changed. As we are changed, Lord, please turn this world upside down. 
Help me now also as I preach and as I fight a bit more sickness. Help me to be true to your word and uh, to have the energy I need to preach well. In Jesus' name, amen. First, it expects a thriving church expects a simple message to turn the world upside down. First and second Thessalonians are all about a community of people who have embraced a counter-cultural mindset. Let me show you what I mean with a few verses. Early in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says he is remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that because this highlights what he praises God for in them. But they've embraced this message. They, they have this work and this labor and the steadfastness of hope in Jesus. Later in that chapter, he says, Not only has the word of God sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So the word of God has sounded forth from them and their faith has gone out. In chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. He's been approved with this message. This He calls it this gospel, a word that means good news. And he says later in that chapter, verse 8, Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. So in these letters, Paul speaks over and over about this gospel, this good news. It's, it's a message of good news. What is the good news that he has proclaimed that they've embraced so that that word goes forth and their faith sounds forth in all the world? Let's hear Paul himself speak it as he proclaims it to these Thessalonian people. I want to read from Acts chapter 17. Paul and his partner Silas have, have just been, in the narrative of, of Acts, they've just been personally escorted by police out of the city of Philippi, a, a little farther north, north and east from Thessalonica, and they've moved down along the Grecian coast. And in Acts 17, we find out, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So here in Thessalonica, Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. And saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. 
And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So in this passage of Acts, in verse 2, we see that Paul and Silas speak with a simple two-point message that they speak over three Saturdays of synagogue meetings. See, they, they went in on three Sabbath days, and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Verse 3 We see the two-point message. This was the extent of his message. Point number one was that God's Messiah King must suffer and rise from the dead. See, he's explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. The Christ is the word for God's Messiah King, the chosen one to accomplish what God wants to do in the world and so become ruler of the world. So God's Messiah King must suffer and rise from the dead. That's point one of the message. Point number two of the message at the end of verse three is simply that God's Messiah King is Jesus. He is the one who died and rose from the dead. This is his message. And so in verse four, some are persuaded by this message. But in verse five, many become jealous and whip up a mob dragging some believers before the authorities. And the charge they bring before the authorities is in verse 7. The charge is that they say there is another king besides Caesar. They say that Jesus is another king. The evidence they bring in verse 6 is that they are shouting that these men have turned the world upside down. And they have come here. Here is the message that Paul preached in Thessalonica that the Thessalonians have grabbed a hold of. It's that there is a king besides Caesar. And God has said that this king must suffer and rise from the dead. And that king is Jesus. So with this message, Paul and Silas, along with their followers, Turn the world upside down. And so this is the first mark of a thriving church. It expects this simple message about Jesus, the king who died and rose from the dead. This, a thriving church expects this simple message to have this result. To turn the world upside down. Why? Why would we expect this simple message to turn the world upside down. And it's because of this. The world is already upside down. We live in a world that calls good evil, and it calls evil good. This this world tells you that, that when you're upset with a friend, you should punish that person. Perhaps with anger, perhaps with silence. But think about it. How will punishing that person ever create intimacy? You're supposed to be friends, right? This world is upside down. This world tells you that sexual fulfillment comes along with the freedom to experiment with as many partners and techniques 
and sexual identities as possible. When in reality, such freedom only enslaves you to your passions. And the world has no idea the glory of having a sexual identity with a single partner that you you experience a marriage bond with for decades. There is glory. And the world turns this upside down. Just upside down. The world tells you that money is power. The world tells you that fame is fulfilling. The world tells you that being true to yourself is everything. When in almost every case, the truth is the opposite. Though we live in an upside-down world, Jesus died to remove its curse, and he rose to remake the world in his image, and so sin can finally be dealt with, injustice can be opposed, and falsehood can be exposed for what it is. When Jesus turned everything upside down, he was actually finally setting it to rights. For those of you here today who do not yet follow Christ, please consider this message. That Jesus died to pay for sin, and he rose from the dead to show that it had been paid in full. This is the essence of Christianity. This is our faith. And we'll see soon that that there is a significant cost to following Jesus. Many people won't like it. They won't get it. We might lose our lives over it. We might lose our friends. We might lose our respectability. But man, wouldn't it be wonderful if it was true? If there was really a way to draw close to God forever and not ever be able to lose him, if this upside-down world could finally someday be flipped right side up once again. If that were true, wouldn't it be worth it to give up everything to follow Jesus? So how does this apply for all of us? Friends, when a church stays true to this message of Jesus' death and resurrection, everything changes. Everything gets flipped Right side up. Please stay true to this message. As you read it, as you proclaim it to one another and to the world, you should have every expectation that things will come to rights. Not everything all at once, but eventually every harmful thing will burn. And only righteousness will remain forever. This message has the power to change your life, to break old habits, and to form new ones, to create life where there was only stale, pitiful existence. This message has the power to change our church so that each member thrives in the Lord. And this message has the power to change our society in a way more lasting than any program, any nonprofit organization, any election, or any immigration legislation could ever do. A thriving church expects a simple message to turn the world upside down. Second, a thriving church focuses on cultivating three chief virtues. Now, usually when I preach, I like to explain my point to you and then I apply it. 
after I've explained it. But let me try something new. Let me apply it first, this one. And after I apply it, then I'll go back and explain it. I know this is a little weird. But how does this apply? We're going to focus on cultivating three chief virtues. The application I wish to communicate is this. Don't set your hope in church programs. Don't set your hope in church programs. A thriving church does not thrive because it has all the right activities. Because it has small groups and a youth group and a children's ministry and a singles group and a college group and a daycare. Whatever else we might have. Of of course, none of these things is bad. I'm not opposed to any of these things. We're delighted to do whatever we can do as a church. But the problem with most church programs is that they start out as a good idea. Somebody with a passion for a particular thing gets authorization and responsibility to start that thing up. And then the program gets moving. And then eventually the person who started that program moves on to something else or they move to another town. And other people keep that program going because they feel like they have to keep it going because this is what we do as a church. And before long, it becomes encrusted tradition and few people know why they're doing it. They just know they wish they didn't have to do it anymore. This is not how a church thrives. The elders and I, the other elders and I, are excited to empower you to do what you're excited about and to help us be more effective at proclaiming Christ to our community. We are so thankful for, for uh, Jenny starting your movie nights to reach our community and, and uh, Steph and Becky Miller and others who started our missions team. And, and we're grateful for, for John with his 250-year strategic plan for building renovations <laughs> and improvements. But we are not excited to keep things going just to keep things going. We don't want to focus on programs and activities. We want to focus on cultivating three chief virtues. Okay, is that enough application? Have I piqued your interest? What do I mean by this? What do we want to focus on? What are the three chief virtues for a thriving church? This is the whole point of 1 Thessalonians, this letter. Paul starts near the beginning in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul gives thanks for three things which characterize this young church. Their faith, their labor, and their love. Uh, Sorry, their faith, their love, and their hope. Their faith, their love, and their hope. These three things, you see them in verse 3, and they keep popping up all over the letter. This is the message of 1 Thessalonians. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly, we long to see you. Because he showed us your faith and your love. Later in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So love comes back up there. Chapter 4 of the letter. 
lists, gives three sets of instructions for them as a church. The first one is what they are to believe about God with respect to sexual activity. He's getting at their faith. Who is God? He is an avenger if you commit sexual immorality. And yet he gives, he is a giver, he gives his Holy Spirit to you. His second set of instructions are about how to love one another as brothers and sisters. And his third set of instructions is how to mourn your lost loved ones without grieving like those who have no hope. His three instructions are about faith, love, and hope. And then he caps the letter off with this overall instruction for their church life. Chapter 5, verse 8. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Yes, Paul wants them to trust the message about Jesus. That was my first point in this sermon. He, he wants them to get their doctrine in line. And he moves on to help them get their lives straightened out. But what that will look like for them, for their for their their doctrine to be lined up and their lives to be straightened out, it will look like abounding in three chief virtues. Faith, love, and hope. This is the foundation of church life. And this is what it means for a church to thrive. We believe. We have faith in the truth and remain steadfast in the Lord. We love one another and we care for one another. And we have high hopes for the future even though we might suffer severely in the present. So it all begins with trusting a simple message to change the world. And the way that message changes the world is by producing a community of people characterized by faith, love, and hope. So I have some diagnostic questions for our church on these matters. We'll get to discuss them in small groups uh, soon at, at the bottom of, of your page. Regarding faith, do we trust and live as though Jesus is our king? Are we turning aside from immorality and other false kings that we give our lives to? Regarding love, do we love one another by taking care of one another, minding our own business, and working hard so as not to be a burden? These are the things that come up in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4. And, and third, regarding hope, are we eager for the future? Are we hopeful for the future of our lives, of our church, of our broader community, the future of this world? So we saw from Acts that Paul's ministry in Thessalonica created a church that expects a simple message to turn the world upside down. And we see in the first letter, 1 Thessalonians, that a thriving church that believes that message focuses on cultivating the three chief virtues of faith, love, and hope. Now let's turn to the second letter, 2 Thessalonians, and we'll see that a thriving church changes course when one of the virtues is lost. <clears throat> Look at how Paul introduces his second letter to these people, which was written just a few months after the first letter. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God 
for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Now, when you read this and you compare it to the first letter, do you see the, the critical idea here that's glaring in its absence? We praise God because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And that's it. Paul and his associates boast about these improvements. They praise the faith of the Thessalonians being steadfast despite many afflictions. In verse 4, he goes on talking about that faith and that steadfastness. But there is no mention of hope. No mention of hope. And that's no accident when you keep reading the letter. Chapter 1 goes on to describe how God will eventually wipe out those who are wearing them down. And then inspires them with hope. Because God will be glorified in his people who keep their resolve to do good. And then chapter 2 gives them specific signs to look for regarding the day of the Lord. Regarding this judgment. And all of this is so that they may not be shaken. Chapter 2, he starts out, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And Paul's summary prayer for these people at the end of chapter 2 is for God to comfort them with his love and to give them good hope. See in 2 verse 16, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And then chapter 3 goes on to explain how to live now in light of what is to come. He says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. What am I getting at with all of this? I'm trying to give you, give you a, an overview, a, a big picture of the main message of 2 Thessalonians. And I'm getting, my point is that the whole point of the second letter is, is both to encourage them in their faith and love, which are increasing since the first letter a few months ago, but he's also writing to spur them on in regaining their hope for the future. They've lost hope. They've been beaten down. He wants to help them regain the hope. He wants them to see the lack and to do something about it. Part of that solution is to be reminded of what they already know. But part of that solution is for them simply to live in the present as though God will stick to his plan for the future. Paul doesn't want them to keep doing what they're doing. He wants them to make some changes so that, so that they have not just two of the chief virtues, but all three. And when you're constantly being beaten down by self-identifying religious folk, like the Jewish people were, were persecuting them in Thessalonica, when you're being beaten down by people who are just jealous about what God is doing in your community and they attack you and take you to court and ruin your lives and and laws change and take away your freedom and there's no end in sight, you will be tempted to lose hope that things will ever change. You will be tempted to lose hope that it's worth it to follow Jesus. And you will be tempted to find some other way to engage the world 
besides simply preaching that message about Jesus' death and resurrection. So I have two applications for you. First application, don't lose hope. We just apply 2 Thessalonians directly. Don't lose hope. This application has really hit me as I was preparing because I've been sick for almost four weeks now. It keeps shifting from one thing to another. And I've really been struggling with sadness in my sickness. I'm not sad at anything in particular. I'm just feeling sad about anything and everything. And as I've been studying these books, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and preparing this sermon, it's really encouraged my heart by helping me to focus on what is true and reminding me that what I feel is not always based in what is true. Jesus is coming back, and all our affliction will have been worth it. This gives me real reason not to flip out when my house is too noisy. It's just the noise of six children is rattling in my brain, and it won't go away or when I have lack of sleep, or this lingering infirmity. This application, don't lose hope, it's for all of us. Because we live in a culture that says that this book, this Bible, couldn't be true. These stories in this Bible could never have happened. It might work for you, but it doesn't work for everybody. The most important thing is to be true to yourself. And the only truth that matters is the truth you find within your heart. We live in a world that preaches this message to us all the time. And in fact, we live in a town that celebrates education and the latest research, don't we? Where reputations are staked on ideas and on publication and on the appearance of respectability. And outwardly, this message about Jesus' death and resurrection, it appears to have little respectability. And the mere mention of his name is enough to guarantee you won't get published in the right journals. Now, I have no problem, and the Lord has no problem, with good education and with careful research. And I'm very grateful for those things and for those of you engaged in such things. Such things are incredible blessings for God's people. But just like money and love and sexuality and responsibility, we have to keep God's good blessings in perspective and not make them our masters. Because the opinion of the academic bourgeoisie is not our king. And the collective judgment of the intelligentsia is not our king. And the peer review board and the thesis defense committee, and the trade association is not our king. We have another king besides Caesar, and his name is Jesus Christ. When you feel beat down in this world, please don't lose hope. It's application number one, don't lose hope. And application number two, whenever we have lost any one of the chief virtues, not just hope, we lose any of the three, We should do all we can to regain it. We should do all we can to regain it. We should throw all of our resources behind that. As I said before, this is more important than keeping all of our programs running. This is more important than drumming up more contributions for the church in that little box back there. Let us be willing to confront the brutal facts 
to perceive the loss and ask God to grant us favor in regaining it. May the Lord direct our hearts, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 5, to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. In our small groups in a few minutes, we'll have the opportunity to evaluate how we're doing in these areas. We've got these diagnostic questions. And we can evaluate whether we expect, whether we really expect this simple message about Jesus Christ to turn the world upside down. We can talk about whether we're focused enough on cultivating the three chief virtues of faith, love, and hope. And let's discuss whether we've lost any of the virtues and need to work on regaining it. I'm eager to hear what you come up with and to see how God might use it. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for these letters. Thank you for this message, this simple message that Jesus is your appointed king. He is our king. And as we trust in him and we proclaim his death and resurrection, the world will turn upside down. Lord, help us to be a thriving church characterized by faith, love, and hope. Help us to be willing to see when we might lose one of these virtues and to do all we must do to fight to regain it. Thank you, Lord, for the great gifts you've given to us and the people you've placed with us. Help us to honor you and proclaim your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.